This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, Episode 316, Living Off Rentals with Kirby Atwell. Traditional financial planning is no longer working. And in the new normal economy, your host, certified financial planner Mark Willis, invites you to join us as we engage the new and improved steps for establishing financial sanity. Be curious, be stable, be sane. This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. Wait a minute, you didn't know we had a YouTube channel? That's right, we put content that we don't put anywhere else on YouTube, and you need to see it to believe it. So be sure to follow, like, and subscribe our channel so you won't miss a thing. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode. What if I told you that you could buy properties valued at, let's say, less than $100,000? We're talking real estate properties here, valued at less than $100,000. And then just turn right around and rent them out for more than 2000 bucks net income per month. Does that sound too good to be true? Well, that's exactly what Kirby Atwell does using his utilitarian model of short-term rentals. He owns 21 properties that generate incredibly high cash flow and keep low expenses. In this episode, we're going to get into Kirby's story and how he shares how he got into real estate in the first place, why he switched from flipping houses to renting them, and eventually got into what he calls short-term rentals. You know, after graduating from West Point Military Academy, Kirby served six years as a U.S. Army officer, where his interest in real estate really took off. Buying his first property in 2006, Kirby's passion for real estate began to grow. And in 2011, he pursued real estate full-time, founding his investment company right here in Chicago area. He rehabbed over 100 properties during that season of life, but today he focuses less on flipping and rehabbing and focuses more on high cash flowing vacation rentals in northern Indiana. Living on a picturesque 45-acre farm with his family, Kirby's signature program, the First Vacation Rental Investment Blueprint, helps others achieve their real estate dreams. And as host of the Living Off Rentals podcast and YouTube channel, he shares valuable insights and experiences with his clients check out his YouTube and podcast itself, but be sure to listen to the end of this episode where we talk more about some of the strategies he's employed to helping him reach financial freedom and how you can do it too. Take it away, Kirby. Kirby, welcome to the show. Mark, it's awesome to be here. I really appreciated having you on my podcast just a couple weeks ago, and you were so helpful to my community. So I'm uh, hoping to share just a fraction of that helpfulness here today with your community. Well, you have already brought a lot of value to yours. And before we get to that, I want us to go way back to kid Kirby days, you know, baby Kirby. Tell us how money got involved in your life. What's the first memory you have with money? Yeah, so I think probably the first memory I have with what felt like real money to me as a child was when I was like, I think it was around 12 or 13 I started working at a nearby farm that was kind of on the corner. We lived in a subdivision. There was this farm on the corner of our subdivision. And so my mom said, you need to go over there and find a job. And so, so at 12 or 13, walked over there and started doing chores on this farm. Ended up buying a sheep. They, it was a sheep farm. So I bought a sheep and I walked it all summer long so that I could show it at the, uh, the fairs throughout the summer. And then at the end of the summer, you sell it to market and you make 
what feels like the biggest windfall of your entire life as a 12 year old. Um, so it was like, I think it was like four or 500 bucks at the time, but you know, it's all profit because you're, my parents had paid for all the feed and all that stuff throughout it. So, um, yeah. yeah, so I think that was probably my first like entrepreneurial experience with money back when I was you know, 12 or 13. Mm, cool. What, what lessons do you think you learned that still carry forward to today? I, I think that that's kind of where the seed was planted. I, I used to tell my mom, so my, my parents growing up, my dad worked for the park district. So it was like a, it was a, a city job, you know, government job, very stable. My mom ran her own insurance brokerage. So she was, you know, eat what you kill type thing. So I used to tell my mom, you know, I want to do what, what you do. I want to do that type of work where the harder I work, the more I can make. And that's kind of what I experienced, I think, as a young 12-year-old walking my sheep every day was that if I can make this sheep a grand champion, which it actually ended up being at the at the state oh, fair, right. then the payoff is much higher than if, you know, I, you, you don't, it doesn't have the muscular structure and it doesn't beat the other, the other sheep at the fair. So it was all about like, you know, doing all these things that, that could, that could help make that, that income higher and, and performance better. Mm. Um, I think I got the bug for it then. And so I knew that I wanted to work for myself. I wanted to be in this situation where the harder I work, the more I can make. So most kids your age were just counting sheep, but you were flipping sheep uh, in essence, in essence, right? So that's awesome. What a cool story. I think there's so many lessons, you know, where do we get the idea that our kids should just be, you know, in, uh, enclosed in little cloisters, playing video games and just, um, doing nothing of value until some magical age when they're supposed to somehow know how to be the best version of themselves. No, I, I believe that kids are best learning when they're out doing. And even if it's learning as a W-2 job under some other boss, at least you're learning something about what it means to run a business, operate a business, serve other people uh, and uh, or sheep in this case. So well done, man. What a cool story. Thank you. Now tell us, bring us to the present. What do you do today? How do you serve uh, your fellow man? Yeah, um, I can give you a little bit of background just for context. So when I graduated from high school, I knew I wanted to go in the military and I also wanted to be an entrepreneur. So those two things don't coexist very well together typically, but I knew those were both passions of mine. So I went to West Point Military Academy and got commissioned in the army and served six years. I knew that I did not want to make it a career. I wanted to get out and kind of, again, choose my own path and do my own thing but I just wanted to serve initially. So yeah. that's what I did. And as I was in the army, I picked up Rich Dad, Poor Dad, along with some other books, but that was the one that really kind of changed my mindset a bit. And it got me really focused on real estate. And so I bought a couple rental properties while I was in the army. And then in 2011, got out of the army and went into real estate full-time. And I started flipping initially and realized after five years, it took me five years because I'm a very slow learner, I realized that I was on this perpetual treadmill of hustle of, you know, trying to get that next deal and never really getting ahead. You know, the, the profit that we made from each deal, we'd put right back into the business to pay our bills for the last six months while we were flipping that property. And we thought scale was the answer. So we scaled up and it was just more stress and more headaches. So that's when I shifted in 2016 to rental properties. And then very quickly after that, to short-term rentals. And I have a very unique model on short-term rentals that I that I 
personally do myself. We have 21 vacation rental listings or short-term rental listings. And then I also teach other people this model as well. It's sort of a utilitarian short-term rental, very high cash flowing model. Fascinating. So maybe make the distinction. First of all, what are traditional vacation rentals for those that don't know? And then tell us a bit about this non-traditional vacation rental and how it helps toward financial freedom. Yeah. So I think it's it's kind of difficult for people to wrap their head around the difference. I, I can share with you. So I, I just had a conversation recently with somebody who called me up. They wanted to work with me. And this person owned a duplex in Albany, New York, not the mecca of vacation spots, I would say. Um, right. And so... They've owned this this duplex for a very long time. They lived in it initially many years ago. And then when they were moving down to South Carolina, they decided just to keep it, turn it into a short-term rental as opposed to selling the building. And they didn't know what to expect, but all of a sudden this thing really started renting out and they started making several thousand dollars per month of net cash flow after all their expenses on this property. And so they did that for a couple of years. And after having that experience, they thought, well, if this works for these you know, this duplex in Albany, then if I get go buy one of these fancy cabins that everyone's talking about for the last three years, that, you know, with all the amenities that's super high end, then I'm going to make a killing on that. Obviously, it's very intuitive to, to go that direction. That's where everybody tends to gravitate when they get into short-term rentals. So they bought this $800,000 plus cabin, really high end cabin with all the amenities. They showed me the listing. It was beautiful. They bought it in the mountains of North Carolina. And that was nine months ago. And the reason we were having a call is because since that time, they'd either lost money or broke even every single month since they made that purchase. And they they called me to say, we know that you kind of do more of the Albany model. How can we do more of those? And how can we pick properties like that, that cash flow several thousand dollars a month, cost way less, way less competition, way more buyer renter pool. You can rent it for so many more reasons than just the small pool of high-end renters that can afford the million-dollar cabin. And so there's so many advantages to it, including the fact that you get to financial freedom typically much quicker by investing in these. And so that's that's the model that I I work on. I see. So in essence, you're getting the, the work-a-day vacation rentals. This is more the the Holiday Inn versus the, I don't know what the highest level of, you know, the Four Seasons, let's say. You're you're choosing the Holiday Inn versus the Four Seasons when it comes to vacation rentals. Is that correct? And two, why do you think people choose the Albany model, the the, the Holiday Inn version, versus, let's say, the, the Four Seasons versions of vacation rentals? Why do you think they do that? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's a good way to look at it. I think you can kind of get the best of both worlds, though, because it is more of the, the holiday in model in terms of price and, you know, you can host people who are, are traveling for utilitarian reasons as opposed to high-end vacation. But because the competition is so low in these markets, you can be pretty top-notch with not that much, you know, expense. So we're, we're typically the first ones booked up because, you know, our competition just isn't, isn't that great. Um, so when you look at the price point to... Rent, nightly rent. If you think about it, like if you buy in like a, a traditional or primary market that people think about with vacation rentals, so maybe a big city or one of these like Gatlinburgs or, you know, Destin Beach type locations, it's been like the t- 
hop vacation rental locations for the last several years, these places, you're going to pay a premium. You know, it might be four or five times as much as the exact same property just outside of these areas. Mm -hmm. So just outside of the city, maybe a half hour outside, still driving distance to the city, like where we are, we're in Michigan City, Indiana, an hour drive to Chicago, but we've got some local draws. The same property that I buy for $200,000, that's like a, a duplex in Michigan City, would cost me maybe six, $800,000 plus in downtown Chicago. Mm, so you're getting right. it for a fourth of the cost, but the nightly rate is not even half, you know? Yes. So, so the ROI on every dollar invested is just so much higher. And I, I recommend the, the multi-units because you can get multiple streams of income out of it and, and you can use it for so many different purposes. In the busy season, we book out the whole building because it's big groups traveling. And then in the slow season, it's small, like, you know, it's couple getaways, it's workers, it's nurses, and you can book it out to smaller groups. So you get so much versatility. That's fantastic. Okay. So, and by the way, shout out to Michigan City, Indiana, some of the best Amish pie I've ever had right out of that little town. So that's an awesome little spot. And you're right. I think there is the times that I've seen Airbnb really compete with the hotel or something else that I'm doing. I'm looking at, hey, I'm not going to be spending, it's not the 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 mega vacation most of the time. You know, maybe you do one of those every other year or something like that, depending on your family, but you might travel, you know, depends on your needs, but you know, five, 10 times a year and you're going to these Airbnbs that get the job done. It's a nice spot. You've got a couple of amenities, luxuries, whatever, but you're not talking, you're not looking at getting your feet massaged by uh, robots or anything at these hot- at these Airbnbs. You just want to give yourself a nice place to stay. Right. What do you think is the biggest challenge in this model that you've seen? I'd say, you know, I, I obviously am a huge fan of it. So I tend to look at it through maybe rose colored glasses because the cash flow is just so phenomenal that I kind of, I guess, maybe maybe overlook some of the challenges. But I think that the, our biggest challenge probably is in the slow season. So we, we typically, what we see in our market is about 100% occupancy in the peak season. You know, in the summer months, kids are out of school. All of our properties are just totally booked. And then in the slow season, it's about 50%. You know, so it's, it's a lot of long weekends. We'll get the occasional three-month booking here and there, but, but pretty much every book in, weekend is booked. And then you get some weekdays as well. So but in the slow season, for some reason, it, you know, at the lower price point, you do have more challenging guests. So, so I think that's the biggest challenge is, is just making sure you screen well, which I think we do compared to a lot of other hosts. And it's prevented a ton of problems after over, you know, a thousand different guests have booked with us. We haven't had any like rager parties or anything like that or huge destruction, but you have the occasional guest that's you know, doesn't follow the rules and smokes weed in the property or something like that, you know? So, sure. so we're always learning different things. And those problems seem to be mostly in the off season. In the high season, somebody who's paying close to $1,000 a night over 4th of July weekend to book one of our properties, you won't hear from them. They won't have any issues. They'll just follow the rules and they're great. And then somebody who books that same property for $100 a night in January, you have all kinds of needs that they have and problems and stuff. So I think it's probably with any industry, you know, you've got to um, pick your, your customers and, and um, 
you know, the, it's the 80-20 rule, but uh, it seems like all those issues seem to come in the off season for some reason. I think that's true in almost every business. I think there's probably more complaints at the fast food joint than at the the, Mich- the three-star Michelin star restaurants. You know, there's just something about the, the um, you rise to the occasion uh, when you're paying a thousand bucks a night, hopefully, for a, for a place to stay on 4th of July. What is the situation like on the ground right now when it comes to purchasing these deals? What is financing like, especially in this day and age with interest rates going up and mortgage rates literally doubling as of this recording? So what has that been like and how have you overcome those challenges? I think this is another advantage to the way that we invest. So if you look at you know, buying the million dollar property in these competitive vacation rental markets, when you look at the difference between 4% interest rates on you know investment deep we call them DSCR loans, debt service yep, coverage. DSCR. Yeah. Can you explain what that means and who gets those? Yeah. And because yep. this is a fairly recent phenomenon, at least I've only heard about it in the last six, eight months or so. So what are those and then how do they fit into your business model? Yeah, it's a, it is a great point that these are newer because when I got out of the army in 2011, part of the reason why I started flipping, a big reason was that there was no financing for long-term rentals for somebody with no W-2. Like there was just no 30-year loan out there unless you're buying multifamily. You couldn't go get a long-term loan on investment properties, you know, residential investment properties. So, so they didn't exist. Now, you know, over the last five years or so, there's a lot of DSCR lenders, which debt service coverage ratio just means that the amount you're bringing in on a monthly basis covers the debt service for that loan. So your payment, the loan payment, which is, you know, principal, interest, taxes, and insurance. So if that's the case and the the property brings in enough to cover the loan, they don't have to look at you individually like you would on a traditional mortgage that you would get for your personal house because they don't care if you how much you make as in your W2 job. All they care about is does the property pay us because if I ran off, they could just take the property and it's 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 paying the mortgage. So these are great. This is how we finance most of our our properties. It's a combination of, because the DSCR loan typically covers 75% of the purchase price, and then we'll go out and borrow private money sometimes for the difference. So again, if you look at a traditional market where you're paying a million dollars and these DSCR loans were 4% just two years ago, now they're at 8 to 9% for a 30-year loan. The difference in that is several thousand dollars a month in your payment. So you know, when you when it comes to cash flow and you take into account the expenses, especially on again, these higher end properties where you've got the hot tub and you've got a pool and you've got all these things that need to be serviced and you know, it's a huge property. So you've got the higher utility bills and just everything has to be perfect for somebody who's paying the price point that you're you're charging there. A lot of times the cash flow just doesn't make any sense. But for us, when we're buying hundred to two hundred thousand dollar properties. The difference in your payment on a hundred dollars to $200,000 loan that's at 4% to 8% might be a, you know, a few hundred bucks. It might be up to 500 bucks. You know? So if that property, if you're buying a small multi-unit that's bringing in you know, six dollars $7,000 regularly on a monthly basis, you know, that $500 difference isn't the end of the world. It's, it, the, the fundamentals of the deal still make a ton of sense. It's not based on needing to have an interest rate super low 
And that once that goes away, now the fundamentals change, the fundamentals are there. And so that's how I, I choose properties. And that's why this, this method works so well. And so the, the financing hasn't changed a whole lot for us. Our payments are a bit higher, but the cash flow still is, is really strong. So I'll just uh, reiterate what you've told me. And I mm-hmm. want everyone to make sure they heard what, what you just said, because what you're saying, Kirby, is that there's a loan program out there that does not rely on your credit history, let's say, or your capacity to service that loan on your own from your W-2 job, let's say. Let's say that you're a young kid that's young Kirby just getting started in this all over again, and you have no history of investing in real estate. This is maybe your first deal even, and you have no job, let's say even, but you found a property with an occupant already in there paying the rent. Or, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, because you know this probably more than I do on this program, Kirby, but, or you can look at the comparable rents that are received in the neighborhood and Mm -hmm. apply that to the loan application. In other words, the mortgage company wants to know that this house can be rented to service their mortgage. And I believe it needs to be a rent of at least 125% of what the mortgage payment would be. Correct me if I'm wrong on any of this so far. Yeah. So it's a great summary. That's generally how it works. Um, Every lender is going to have different stipulations. So typically they do pull your personal credit just to make sure you don't have a bunch of defaults. Oh, there you go. That's good. Glad to hear that actually. Yeah. Yeah. They don't, they want to see you don't have a history of just not doing what you say you're going to do. Beyond that though, they're not looking at your W-2s, your tax return or anything like that. Experience wise, some of them if it's your first deal, they don't care. Others, they want to see, you know, that you've done a few of these deals previously. To get around that, you could just partner with somebody, add them as a 1% owner on your LLC. Say you'll pay them a nominal fee for being a silent partner who's done this before. And and now you you have experience. So there's different ways to to structure things to make it work. But like you said, if you find a great cash flowing deal, that's the key. And yes, they will use comps, even if it's not rented out, they'll just use comparable rents in the area. And again, another huge advantage of this model, this utilitarian model, is that they work really well as long-term rentals also. So when they look at the DSCR, it can cover 1.25. Some of of them are just one-to-one, but a lot of them are 1.25 is what they want to see in terms of that DSCR. It can cover it based on long-term rents. And so you can get that loan as opposed to buying a million dollar property where if the lender wants to see that long-term rent rates are going to cover, you know, the the cost of that loan, it's just not going to make sense that you could never use it as a long-term rental. Short-term rentals is the only possibility for you on a property like that. So there are some that will lend on short-term rentals, DSCR, but a lot of them want to see that it works as a long-term rental as well. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's more committed cash flow from the renter there's a, a one-year lease versus a one-night lease or something like that. Well, this wow. is phenomenal. You know, I, you might know that our podcast really strategizes around concepts that are not so average. One of those strategies I talked with you about on your podcast, the bank on yourself concept, which mm-hmm. uses dividend-paying whole life insurance, where you can borrow against it at very favorable rates over a four-year period. Loan rates can be in the one to one half to two and a half percent APR. Now, there's a whole longer answer to all that, but let's say that I had $150,000, $200,000 in cash value in a policy, let's say, 
And I'm looking at a deal like you're describing, a utilitarian short-term rental type scenario. And I have a choice. Would I use my policy, given what you know about bank on yourself, and we can talk through that if you want, or would I use another mortgage loan or DSCR loan or something like that? What would what would you say to that? Yeah, I'd, I'd absolutely use use your bank on yourself, a loan from your your policy. Mm. Now you could use that as a down payment on multiple properties That's too. A great even better. Why yeah. why is that a better deal than even just on one property? So the leverage is one of the biggest benefits of real estate, and I I say that with with a you know, a grain of salt, I guess, take it with a grain of salt in terms of leverage is always on a spreadsheet. Leverage is always awesome. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, that's a good way to put that. The more leverage, the better on a spreadsheet. It's always beneficial to you. Uh, it works in both directions, though. I, I was going to say, I've been on those seesaws on the playground, man. I know leverage goes both ways. Yes. Exactly. But you're, you're exactly right. If we can spread out, we diversify our properties across six different cities or states, and yeah. we put that 200 grand in cash value into six different properties. Yep. Well, that's maybe better because you have better odds of covering the expenses. You get more occupancy, leverage is in your favor, even if it means some bank money, which might be higher interest. But you're saying that, hey, better than paying cash or using a bank would be to use your policy um, yep. just due to the the values of um, banking on yourself and control and the lower APR. Is that what I hear you saying? Oh. Absolutely. And compared to any other investment, the returns on, on these properties, I mean, there's we have several that are over 100% cash on cash return. So That's incredible. Yeah. yeah. Just to give context, what would be a typical long-term rental cash on cash return in this market? What most people, if it's turnkey, like they're shooting for 10, 12 is really great for typical in this, this market. Yep. Yep. And the return on equity too is amazing on short-term rentals. If you find the right ones, you know, if you find yourself in those glamping type cabins with with $2 million valuations, you're really going to have to squeeze all the renters in there you can to break that thing even. But on these utilitarian kind of workaday vacation rentals, you're saying you're seeing some significant cash on cash returns and, uh, you know, doing that in a way that helps you reach financial freedom. So why did you start all this? When did you realize you had a passion for it? As we kind of wrap up this episode, tell us how you found this and discovered it and decided yeah. to make it your passion. Yeah, I, I have a story that's similar to a lot of people I talked to actually around it. it. And it was, you know, in 2017, we had been doing long-term rentals and we moved from Chicago over to Northwest Indiana. We bought a property on, in Beverly Shores, right on the on Lake Michigan. And we had this walkout unfinished basement, you know, and, and we bought a house that was all 1970s, like time capsule inside. I mean, it needed a full rehab. So we're rehabbing the house anyway to move into. And we're thinking about the best use of this basement. And I was like, you know, I keep hearing about Airbnbs. Let's let's just try this. You know, we'll put an extra 30,000 into the basement, turn it into a one bedroom apartment. And, it, you know, worst case scenario, it adds that equity to the, the house, or we can use it as a long-term rental if this just doesn't work out. And we finished it just before Memorial Day weekend. And it just started booking like crazy. We booked up the whole summer over the next few weeks. And we made, uh, it was just over 20000 It was like $21,000 that first summer on this tiny one-bedroom apartment in our basement. And that's more than I had made on several of our long-term rentals over the whole year. So, <laughs> so that's when I was like, okay, there's something to this. And uh, we need to start to scale this model. And subsequently, I ended up 
selling off all of our long-term rentals. And we just purely focused on this model going forward. Wonderful. And you're not just focused for yourself, you're teaching others. Why don't you tell us a bit about the service you offer your members and clients and how folks can reach out to you? Yeah. So a few years ago, when we got to a point of financial independence, we set out a goal of once we got to eight of these, it would be more than enough cash flow to pay our 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 personal bills. And I would leave my full-time job. My wife was already staying home with the kids. And so we got there uh, a couple of years ago. Congratulations. Um, thank you. Yeah, fairly quickly. And and so, you know, since then, we've obviously continued to expand. Um, but it gave me all of a sudden, I underestimated, I think, the capacity that that frees up in your life when all of a sudden you're not working 40 plus hours a week. I used to be the CFO of a nonprofit and, uh, and I was driving downtown Chicago many days a week. And so now I can work from wherever I want. Our properties pay our bills. And so the intent with that, though, to getting the financial independence was to have a bigger impact. It wasn't just to like be able to kind of sit around and do nothing. So the way that we talked about having a bigger impact is to teach others the exact process that we did to get there. And so uh, I created this program called the First Vacation Rental Investment Blueprint that walks people who are working full-time through the process of finding, buying, and setting up their first really high cash flowing utilitarian type property like I'm talking about. So I've been doing that for the last couple of years and we've had right around 160 people so far who have worked through that program or are working through that program. Um, and it's just some of the most gratifying work that I've done because people are like, you know, this is literally changing my life. Fantastic. And folks can find this. Uh, where can they go to find this mastermind and learn more? Yeah. So I, I put together kind of a, it's a 90 minute mastermind or master class on our our process. So if they go to livingoffrentals.com forward slash start, um, you can find the masterclass there. And that goes through how we do or how we think about the things that we we do. And um, if that resonates with you, then you can always set up a call with me directly. There's a link there to set up a call with me directly and we can talk through the program and see if it's a good fit for your goals. Great. Thank you, Kirby. That Again, that's livingoffrentals.com forward slash start. Thank you so much, Kirby, for coming on today. Thank you. Thanks again, Kirby, for coming on the show today and sharing so much wisdom. I had a couple of brief takeaways, guys, I want to share as we wrap up the episode. Number one, got to research this utilitarian model of short-term rentals, and I really identify potential markets that could really fit the criteria of what we talked about today, low-cost real estate, high demand for renting it out, and diverse reasons for traveling to that particular destination. That utilitarian model of short-term rentals seems really unique as an approach for real estate investing. That involves, of course, purchasing properties in less competitive markets at lower price points, and then starting to rent those out in short-term durations, like a night or a week or two weeks or a month, rather than the full one-year rentals that are typical. And you can re rent them out for lots of reasons. Maybe it's a vacation. Someone's coming to that area for a vacation or a work trip or medical stays if you're near a hospital. But the main benefit of this model is the super high cash flow and a really quick path toward financial freedom. Next takeaway I had was comparing the cash on cash returns of what he calls the utilitarian short-term rentals with more traditional long-term rentals or other investment options. Kirby's journey in real estate investing really started with flipping properties. And I find a lot of my clients do start their real estate journey 
flipping a house or a property or apartment building. But he soon realized that all this hustle and bustle and stress of flipping was really not sustainable and never gave him that passive income he was looking for. So switching over to rental properties and then ultimately to short-term rentals gave him a lot more flexibility and scalability. So a big takeaway here is know your exit strategy here. And are you looking for a quick buck? Maybe flipping is for you. If you're looking for more passive streams of income that can get you to financial freedom, maybe look at alternative strategies that bring those solutions to bear. Finally, learn about some different financing options that are available if you're going to get into short-term rental properties. Look into products like the DSCR loans. That's something I've been exploring with one of our mortgage companions, Matt Shanlian, who I'll have on an upcoming episode here in a few weeks. He speaks some about this in the episode. So go back and listen to this particular tool if you're not familiar with it. Second, look into private money. And third, most assuredly, check out bank on yourself type policies for self-financing options. Now, as many of you know, bank on yourself type policies are life insurance policies that allow you, the policyholder, to borrow against the cash value of the policy at a very low interest rate while the policy continues to grow, keeping you in control and not breaking compound growth. So I just want to thank Kirby one more time for coming on the show today and giving us such great offers, ideas, boundaries, documentations, all the things that he shares today. He goes into further detail in his blueprint. So be sure to check out him and all of what he has to offer through his podcast, the YouTube channel, and his website. Thank you again, Kirby, for coming on the show. And thank you everyone for joining me for this week's episode of Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think and live differently with your money, your real estate, and your future. This has been another episode of the Not Your Average Financial Podcast. To join a financial revolution and start thinking different about money, go to www.nyafinancialpodcast.com and click Request a Meeting. The topics presented in this podcast are for general information only and not for the purposes of providing legal, accounting, or investment advice. On such matters, please consult a professional who knows your specific situation.